Hey everyone, welcome to episode 27 of the So This Is My Way podcast. I'm your host and producer, Linya. And before we begin, I just wanted to share that this podcast now has its own weekly newsletter, which you can find at sothismywhy.com forward slash 27, which features further details about this episode, as well as a wide variety of inspirational figures. And today's episode features Freda Liu, a sought-after business radio host of BFM 89.9, Malaysia's top business radio station, where she's interviewed the likes of Jillian Assange, Nick Wojcik, and Prince Andrew. It's a five-time book author, MC, moderator, and speaker. In this interview, Freda shares what her childhood was like growing up in Syria, Brunei, until the age of 14, before moving to Kuching, Sarawak, and how her return to Kuching opened the doors for her to begin a life of news reading. An experience that, when coupled with her exposure in the PR and marketing world, placed her perfectly to take up a position in a brand new startup known as PFM 89.9. Freda is such an inspirational character, not least because of her desire to constantly challenge and improve herself, leading to hashtag Doakaja and even hashtag Tigakaja. For those who don't speak Malay, that means holding two or three jobs at the same time. If you want to know how Freda built her life, gaining the many skills that has allowed her to truly understand and share the business stories of Malaysia, then this is the episode for you. Are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. You were born in Syria, Brunei, because your parents, who yeah. are both Sarawakians, had met in Brunei, and you stayed there until the age of 14. So I'm wondering, what were the big influences in your life growing up in that small town, the youngest of four siblings? I would highly recommend people grow in small towns. And this is life before the internet. So you find entertainment in everything, in the garden, the backyard. And TV was at that time probably one channel, two channel growing up in Brunei. So I think that was the simplicity of life. So you're not caught up in the hustle and bustle. And I'm really grateful because my dad working in Brunei, he was working for Shell, as I think like three quarters of the population was. He would go to work at seven o'clock and he would finish work at 4.15. And it's a very small town. So he's home in five minutes. So you've got a lot of time and dad I like spending time with, with the family, just raking the leaves in the garden. I think this is sort of gone in the city. I wish I could impart a little bit more of that with my son. I find that you're more imaginative because there really is nothing else to do. You were swimming in the sea when you were a child as well. I, yes, yes. So, so you think about it, my goodness. <laughs> so like I live behind the recreation club. So it's like a five minute walk. So you walk there and I'll swim in the pool and I must have been about nine or 10. The sun's about to set. So this is the time to go home. And then you just go out swimming in the sea. The sea is calm. Then you come back and no lifeguard, none of these things. You're by yourself. You don't feel unsafe. No way would I let a nine, 10 year old now to do that. Like I said, it was very simple. I think one of the things that I really love from growing up is appreciating nature. My son, who is afraid of bugs, was afraid of lizards, even dead roach in the house. I said, it's dead. He's terrified of roaches. So 
I don't know where he gets that from. I'm like, grandma used to just take it up from the wall and take off the head. So this is my mom. So I, I have to say it as well, like my mother was very encouraging, right? So I said, mom, I want to take up keyboard, uh, organ. I want to do Chinese. I want to do this. I want to do that. She never stopped us from doing all these things, never scolded us for stopping. So very encouraging in that sense. I have to say, right, growing up, never had this, whether I'm a boy or a girl, just letting a child be, right? Uh, and regardless of gender. So I'm very grateful that she was progressive, not realizing she was progressive. Is it right to say that the community was quite diverse as well? I think you went to a missionary school and your classmates were like Gurkhas and Brits and Australians. Yes. So it was because it's a good school and it's not an international school. I think like those who didn't have to take Malay, just didn't take Malay, that kind of thing. And that was great. I saw diversity at a very young age, not knowing that. And I've always been in a co-ed school. So you see boys and girls of different races and different what. And I always make this joke, whether you like a person or don't like a person, it's on pure merit. You can dislike a person on pure merit and it's not because of your race or religion. So that was very interesting. When you were in Brunei, you were already listening to radio. There was this British mm. Forces Broadcasting Service. What was that like? Okay, so this was such a small station, right, that you can only hear it in my town. We're not even the capital city. Because Brunei was a, a British protectorate until 1984. So the army had their own radio station. So then you listen to British music and you hear the way radio was done. And again, that was entertainment. So I've always loved radio because it can take you on a journey and you feel like it's a company to life, right? You come back, you get in the car, you listen to it. And there was a physical radio. So the radio will be at home and the radio will be turned on all the time. So it made such an impact on my life. So I've always loved radio. I mean, I've done TV, obviously I'm doing radio, but I find that there is more magic in radio as in it's more challenging to try to tell a story without visuals. So if you able to capture that, that's quite unique. And even though you were born in Brunei, Ansan, you couldn't become a citizen? Okay, so it's a bit like Malaysia, where you could be born in a country and you're not necessarily a citizen. So the strange thing is like everybody in my family are permanent residents. My parents are permanent residents and my three older siblings are permanent residents. And for some strange reason, I didn't get a permanent residence. No reason why. No reason why how three of my siblings got it and I didn't get it. And you look back in life right now, you say, okay, I get it, God. I get it, God. You've just completely closed that door. And you understand why the door is closed too. But at that point, this is my life. This is all I've known. And when you're 14, that's all of your life. And you're like, what? I have to leave this place. This is my home, da, da, da. So it was quite quite sad. And I still have a sister there. And my brother was working there for the longest time as well. So the older siblings stayed on. And one brother's in Kuching and this me out in KL. And was it a huge culture shock to come from Brunei into Kuching? Not really, because I will go back every year. I always go back every year and I go back to Bao because my grandmother was still alive then. So every year, Christmas time, you just go back, spend a month in another small town, but I love it. Again, everything was exciting. The rivers, the lakes, the streams, whatever, that was exciting. And the Blue Lake, Tasek Biru. But the culture shock was you've grown up in a Brunei shell environment. Nice, cushy home, hot and cold water, fully air-conditioned. The house people come by and do the gardening for you twice a week. Culture shock in that sense that you mean when you're back to Kuching, you mean you have to pay your own electricity bills. You mean you have to pay water bills. So that was the culture shock. Right? I mean, of course, your parents tell you these things, right? So just culture shock in that sense. I didn't have a miserable life. It was just a contrast to the life that I was used to. So you were in Kuching for around four years. And I understand you were working at Kuching Hilton as well while you were figuring out what to do. Yeah, so I went to Sunny Hill School. 
So I did my O-levels and A-levels at the same time because they gave you liberty to do that. I just want to get out of school. Then I took a year off while figuring out what I wanted to do. I mean, I got some other certifications along as well. That's when I worked at Kuching Hilton. So when it first opened, I was there. I was one of the pioneer staff. I checked in the first guest in Kuching Hilton when it opened over 30 years ago. While I was figuring out what I wanted to do, I realized that I didn't want to do hotel management. And during that time, I decided to do a marketing degree because I said, okay, if I really like the hotel, a marketing degree can be used in any industry. And I really really am so glad I took that course. I really enjoyed it. I learned so much from it. I feel that I'm still applying the principles of marketing to my life. So that was my gap year. And my gap year was spent working. And, and I'm glad I worked and opened my eyes to things as well. Were there any big moments that influenced you or has left a mark on you from that time? I was studying at HELP. So HELP, I did two years in Malaysia and I did my final year in Australia. I mean, I'm so glad that I had the opportunity to spend a year in Australia. And the friends that I made so many years ago, they're still friends right now. The mark for me was don't go with the same bunch of people, stay in the same house, the same kind of thing. So I stayed in a, a private dorm. So you meet with all kinds of people. And that's why you go to Australia, you want to meet new people. And a lot of what we studied was also projects and teamwork. I found it was a very useful course because you got to work with people. You got to start learning how to work with people. The moment you come out, you got to learn all these things. It's not just the education, academic perspective. It's also the practical perspective. So I, I really enjoyed my time. I went to a very small town in Queensland and you get to know people. And a lot of people, from when I was studying there, they're also from small towns in Queensland and they have no idea where Malaysia is. But like I said, I've got about a handful of them, about four or five of them, and we are still good friends. If they come, they'll stay with me if I go over. And in just that one year, you can develop such great bonds with people. What was interesting was in Australia, like they're so politically correct. You talk about the weather, you talk about sports, you talk about these things. So like every time you look at somebody, you know, they say, hey, so what race are you? I like to ask that question, not out of anything. Because I get asked that a lot. Are you sure you're Chinese? And they say, oh, you're Sarakian and blah, 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 right? So I realized that that was not a nice thing to ask in Australia. Nice words to say, which I learned to be politically correct. Tell me about your cultural heritage. Not where you're from, where you're from, but what's your cultural heritage? But I just find it so fascinating because like, even like the Baba Nyonyas here, the, the different kinds of Chinese here, the different kinds of people here, just where they came from, how they're thinking. It's just out of curiosity, not out of judgment. Were you never tempted to stay back after that one year in Australia? I was. I was tempted to stay back. I think it was a tough time at the time to get jobs. They always go through cycles. Sometimes it's so easy. So that time was a very tough year to get a job. And just as well that I didn't get to stay because my dad was very ill. So I had to come back anyway to take care of my dad. So when I came back to take care of my dad, this was when I got into TV. And if I had stayed on, the circumstances wouldn't have happened. Because after I took care of my dad and after my dad passed away, I stayed on in Kuching for a couple of months, just working out what I want to do. And then a friend called me and said, hey, something is happening with RTM Kuching. The story behind it was my friend asked me to audition for something. I said, I can't do this. I'm taking care of my dad. So then my dad passed away a couple of months later. My friend said, so are you going to go for audition? So this would have been four or five months. I said, what is it? It's so long. You all haven't sorted out what it is. And so I said, yeah, yeah. What, uh, no. My mom said, yeah, yeah, what the heck? I went to meet the producer of the show, not realizing he's a producer. It was just conversation, just talking and everything. Then we said, hey, you got the role. Role of what? I didn't even know the rule for what I'm seeing, like what small show in Kuching that they, they needed someone. So every two years, RTM and what is now known as Media Corp, back then was known as Singapore Broadcasting Station, they would get together every two years as part of government relations. So once in Singapore, then after two years in Malaysia. But because RTM is all over the country, they decided to have this variety show in Kuching. And so right place, right time, I don't know. So I was there. 
and they were looking for a male host and a female host and the male host was this gentleman called Dato Ahmad Tamimi Sreka and he was speaking Malay so they were looking for a female host that spoke English and our team insisted that the female host had to be a Sarawakian I didn't realize there was a live show that was telecasted in Malaysia and in Singapore and what happened was that the people in the audience because it was government relations were the heads of both SBC and RTM and they saw me and that led to my getting into news here in KL when I decided to come over. So you never know. And now had I stayed on in Australia, this wouldn't have happened. Was it a difficult thing for you initially to suddenly be in front of TV for the first time? Yeah, of course. I was more worried about how I would pronounce things and how I would present and all that. So there was a couple of months of training and then after that I got to go on air. So I was with RTM for wow, 16 years as a part-timer, radio and TV. It was really enjoyable. I think it's a whole new experience. So that was part-time. Of course, I had my full-time job at the same time. So when things happened, I never lost the skill in broadcasting, so I was always doing that part-time while holding a full-time job. So very very fortunate. And I think the director general at RTM was also someone who was very instrumental in your career. Yes, yes. He passed away a few years ago and I saw an article that his daughter was there. And I just dropped the daughter an email. I just I just want to let you know that your father was very instrumental in getting me there. He was a kind and lovely gentleman. And now she works with one of the universities and said, that really made my day. I'm going to tell my mom about that. Sometimes people that come into your life and just help you. So I'm very grateful for all those people that have helped me without them realizing that they've helped me. Yeah. That's wonderful. So how do you transition from that to being in Edelman? in KL? My intention after graduating was always to go into PR because it was a fairly new industry at that time. So I was very good at advertising and PR was an accidental subject that I took. What I liked about PR and I still like about PR is that when you're in advertising, you're either a copywriter, you're a creative, you're account servicing, you're either one of these things. And I found that I would enjoy something in all these areas. So PR allowed me to meet with the client, take the brief from the client, write the proposal for the client, pitch to the client, write the news release and execute on the plan. So you get to do the whole gamut. Yeah, it doesn't pay as well as advertising, but it was just something that I thought was more up my alley to try out and I'm really glad I did well. I think you had another inspiring boss there as well, Julius Evanson. Julius was a sweet boss. He's with a particular bank at the moment. He's with OCBC. He's been there forever. We would have these long journeys and getting caught in traffic. So we'll talk about life and then sometimes we'll have to go out for events and all that and he drives so slowly. <laughs> then when he talks and he drives so slowly, it's perfect just to sleep. <laughs> So the hours must have been, I mean, every time I talk to someone PR, the hours are always really, really long. But I think you were balancing that with your Dua Kerja life, which you've always had. Yeah. Okay. So the news was late at night. So then you can go there late at night. And I did mostly weekends, which is actually not very good because my weekends, you can't have a proper dinner and then you're out there reading the news. So I, this is the sacrifices you make. These are sacrifices that you make right now. And you don't know the fruit of your labor very early on. So most of the time I was reading news on the weekend. Most people didn't like reading on the weekend. I didn't mind, that kind of thing. And it was late at night, so it was fine. I know PR is okay. I think there are days when there are projects that are going to be long, but then you still are able to finish it. Because uh, I mean, a typical day could be 7, 8 p.m. because you're out meeting clients. You're actually starting work at 5 o'clock when you come back after meeting all the clients. That's the price you pay. So no one died and you learn. I enjoyed the consultancy because you're exposed to different industries from construction to pharmaceutical to technology. So you learn a lot. And I think that's one of the things that always drives me, you know, learning. Do you ever feel as though you wanted to hit pause on this dual Koja life at some point? Because it really is quite relentless and there's no end inside. Like for me, I'm doing... Okay, so you've got to love it. You've got to love it. I don't look at it as work. 
But I don't believe being a one-trick pony. I have new skills, doing other things. I speak, I do MC, I do these sort of things. So when I MC, yes, it's another job. During those periods as well, I'm learning. And I always feel that when I get fulfillment in other areas, that fulfillment comes back to work as well. In my job as a radio presenter, always try to be doing something. There's one time I was hashtag Tiga Kujur. There's one time I was news reading, my full-time job, and I was a part-time lecturer as well. So that was like one time. I was like, when you're younger, you've got the energy to do all that. Of course, not married, no, no kids at that time so it's like if not now when right and all of these are experiences and then you do one thing it's okay lecturing not for me but I'm glad I did it I'll tell you something that's happened so recently very interestingly so one of my students this was 20 plus years ago but my students were only three years younger than me three months ago I had lunch and then this everybody wearing a mask and she I was just like hello smiling smiling I don't who know who the person is halfway through in Makan she looked at me and said are you Frida I said yeah you're my lecturer you're one of my favorite lecturers her name is Joanne Lim. She gives me her card and her number and says, can we meet for lunch next week? I said, sure, let's meet for lunch. I'll tell you what I'm up to. So she's into design, right? Very interesting design and, and all that. And she actually does a lot of work for magazines, styling in magazines and all that. So we were sitting down having lunch and she said, let me do the styling of your book cover for you as a gift. How blessed am I? I mean, it's just like, huh? I said, sure. So my next book cover, she did the styling for me. That's amazing. What I found really interesting as I was doing the research is that you were doing this news reading and you said you loved it. You loved it so much that when you were headhunted, you actually turned down a more lucrative offer for IBM, right? Oh, okay. Two different stories. News reading was always part-time. So when I was working at Edelman, then I got headhunted for two jobs. I won't mention the other company. It was a bank and then there was uh, IBM. So the bank was going to offer me a lot more money. I think almost double what I was going to be paid. And at that time, decisions that you make, right? And you also understand your value. They said, okay, you're going to be paid X amount of money. And I haven't signed contract yet. I said, I'm a newsreader, right? I mean, and you can't hide about that. It's not exactly something you moonlight. And then I said, is that going to be an issue? And the bank said, yes, it's going to be an issue. I said, why? I mean, it's non-conflicting at all. And the logic of me having to quit did not jive with me. And the person said, well, if you work for us, people will know that you work for us and that we're not paying you enough. Okay. I said, okay. And then when IBM approached me, not paid as much. I said, I'm a newsreader, da, da, da. And he says, is that going to be an issue? He said, no, no issue at all. So you also decide what is it that is important to you. Can you imagine this company that's dictating your life before you sign the contract? What more after you sign the contract, right? Because I said, I'm going to read the news over the weekend. So it will not conflict with work. And your logic of people thinking that I'm not paid enough, I just resonate with that, right? And then working with IBM, they've always been a very family-oriented company. And it was a lot closer to home which is very important to me. Location is very important to me. Uh, and I'm so glad I made the decision. I stayed with them for 11 years. They're still an organization that I still connect with, uh, with the people that are still there. So I'm, I'm really glad I made that decision. But I think towards the end, you were starting to feel like you were stuck in a corner and you're looking for something else. Yes. Okay. So what happens with organizations like that is that your role always changes. So I mean, I was there for 11 years. Your role always changes. And so happened that there was a particular role that I filled in, which is not PR. For a year, I wasn't doing PR. It was a marketing role. And it wasn't really marketing. The role was such that I didn't get to do any marketing. It was just more like making sure that everybody got paid. It was taking care of business partners. It wasn't horrible. The people weren't horrible. It was just not my... Thing. And if I wasn't pushed to that corner, I would not have considered BFM. It was just like pushed to that corner. And if something suitable will come maybe another two years from that job, two years from then, I was like, I can't take it. Now, what is so sweet about IBM huh, was that they gave me a two-year sabbatical. 
So when I got the job at BFM, I was technically still employed by IBM. And the idea was that if BFM didn't work out, I still had a job at IBM. And they knew that I was working for a radio station. So even though they weren't paying me, they were still paying for my medical and dental. If it didn't work out, I would have a job back at the organization. So I'm so glad I made that decision over a decade ago. And I think that yeah. offer you took it as a sign from God as well. If not for that, you wouldn't have gone for BFM. Yes, that was me testing God. <laughs> you know, the, I don't know if you know the Bible, the Gideon test. Today yeah. is like this, tomorrow's like this. And then he said, okay, okay, okay. And the thing is, where I'm living right now, IBM is one traffic light away. BFM offices move from Banda Utama to Tamantun, but technically it's still two traffic lights away. And that was the first thing I asked, not money, not anything. So you see, like, if you believe in God, the door's just like here at your doorstep. Sometimes when I say it's divine, it is divine. Sometimes it just can't be so magical. And, and so I was there from the beginning. And it was early stages. No one's ever heard of this station. Don't know can tahan, don't know can make money or not, that kind of thing. But it was just something that resonated so much with me because it was a business station and it was talk radio. And if that didn't work out, I could still go back to corporate. The experience there in a business station was still relevant. So I, I connected with it, even though there was a 30% pay cut from IBM. But I just felt that it was like a change I needed. I think also every decade, something happens. My son was in school, Ngam Ngam, primary one. Because my last few years in IBM, I was working from home. So that I could spend time with my son. Which company gives you that? And this was before we were forced through like a pandemic. This is a benefit that you could actually work from home. And so my son was going to primary one anyway. You're a bit more settled in life. I was like, okay, I think I want to do something different now. When you first joined BFM, did you ever think whether it was the right decision? Because, and this is a funny thing that I learned when I was interviewing Malik, every time he starts a new business, he gets hit by a financial crisis. So when he started BFM, Lehman Brothers collapsed soon after that. So it's like, whoa. Okay. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know why I'm still with him. Okay. <laughs> no, I never think of these things. I know it all happened because I knew that I had my two-year sabbatical. If it didn't work out, I can still go back to IBM. So I was like, yeah, okay, it's all right. Just write through it. Just write through it and see what happens, right? And I remember one and a half years with BFM. Uh, IBM called me back and said, hey, you want to come back or not? There's this particular role. I said, don't want But very sweet. My Mr. Kenneth uh, was the HR manager. Then I left after two years. And what was it like in those early days? Because it, it was the first time in Malaysia where you had a business radio channel. So the people who were there were radio presenters, business journalists. They didn't have that specific skill set. Yeah, so there was a lot of the coming form. And then after that, there were culture clashes, right? Because you had two different kinds of people. Those who were radio presenters, but there is no business station. So they may have the skills. Then there were people who were business and they were mostly print journalists. So coming on and it, not only that, different skills, but different cultures. And I think it took us about six months a year to find our rhythm and coming up with a culture that was relevant to us and also had an impact. What does BFM mean to us? When we talk about building first world mindsets, what we want to change. So having been from corporate and having worked in broadcast as well, I could look at things both ways and just like this must be what it's like in a startup and put it down to experience or could you share a little bit more in terms of how bfm came up with their culture i understand you came up with the phrase educate entertain and enlighten yeah, yes, yes. So what is our thinking, right? At, at the end of the day, is it that it is to educate? But you can entertain and entertain doesn't have to be ha-ha entertained. You are entertained even though you're learning. A good documentary, that's entertaining, right? And if you listen to us, are you enlightened? And for me, when I do my interviews, do these three things come out? Do I try to bring that out in an interview? Was the interview educational? Did I try to make it entertaining? Was anybody enlightened from it? If I'm enlightened from it, I'm assuming a listener will be enlightened by it. So that was the early catchphrase uh, that we had. And of course, Malik has his 
is building first world mindsets. And we have to decide as well, what is building first world mindsets? What is first world? What is not first world? Your level of first world and my first world is different, right? I think we went on a little bit further in the early days to say that they were able to discuss things in an intellectual manner. We are moving to that point where we can discuss things intellectually and agree to disagree and learn from each other, but to have those conversations. And you look at how, like in certain places where you can have banter and still disagree and have intellectual debate without resorting to name-calling and swearing and that sort of thing. So that was the early days, yeah. And were you part of the decision-making in terms of deciding who to interview? The first interview that we did was on the morning run. That was with the late Nazrin Hassan from Cradle. That was our first interview. There are different belts in the show. So like in the morning, it's the morning run, very capital markets, very sort of serious businessy stuff, stock market things. So the show that I do is called Enterprise and Enterprise targeted at SMEs. Then you look at businesses, you look at startups, you look at personal development, you look at technology, you look at how organizations are run. How did Enterprise and Her Vantage, your other show, come about? Oh, Enterprise was there from the get-go. So it started with morning run and then we were slowly filling up the morning run. We know that that's what we call drive time. That was the most important thing, the breakfast grill. And then Enterprise is like, let's look at the SME space, maybe business owners who don't have to be in the office by nine because they're opening a shop, that kind of thing. And then after we did the evening show, it's gone through different names. Now it's called Evening Edition. I can't remember what it was called in the early days. I I can't remember. Now already coming to 12 years. Then after that, then we had the afternoon show. So it's like taking a person on a journey. So you're in the morning, you want to know what's happening in the market then maybe you're driving around and you hear about personal development you hear about other smaller businesses afternoon you talk about arts you talk about the health that sort of thing then the evening sort of like you're on your journey home you capture what happened today what was discussed today but maybe not as intense because you're already winding down right so that was how we came about then of course the weekend show so slowly it opened to the different belts what we call the different belts Could you take us a bit deeper into your life and say like a typical day, what it will look like? I imagine you must go in, you must read all the news and come up with the script and then somehow slot it in and do the production and release it. So my typical day, I try to get in at 8.30, even now like 8.39. Then I try to do some pre-recorded interviews, especially if they're overseas. Then I try to do these interviews in the morning. And then the show comes on at 10 to 2. So we had different shows. And it's gone through different directions as well. So 10, sometimes it's pre-recorded, sometimes it's live. I'll tell you about the early days where every hour there was a live guest coming in before the team grew so large, right? So in the morning, I'll be talking to 10 o'clock, new business. 11 o'clock, I have to turn on my head and do personal development. 12 o'clock, I have to talk technology. 1 o'clock, I have to talk about what are the latest marketing campaigns everything. So that was your typical day. In terms of the scripting and all that, now we've got interns and all that, but I still like writing my own script. So I'll prepare that the, the week earlier. I don't do it then and there. We are current. We know what's sort of going on right now, but we're not as intense as the morning run. Now, pandemic era, this week I'm in the studio. Next week, I'm not in the studio. So when I'm not in the studio, I'm prepping for next week. And we try to do things behind the scenes, helping the team, how they do the show. So this week, we're fortunate. So there's only me and my colleague, Audrey. We're on this team. And then there are about three people behind the scenes preparing notes for us because there's a live show at 12 o'clock called Enterprise Biz Bites. So we cover three or four snippets of things. We take people through the poll. We do a poll. Then we talk about that. We get people to participate in the poll. So the live show is now 12 o'clock. A lot of things are pre-recorded now because of the pandemic. And then I was just looking at my name cards. Hey, name cards still there. The box usually goes off very quickly, but it's been the same two name boxes there. A lot of interviews are done over the phone. We're not encouraging visitors as much as possible. And do you find that your interview prep process has changed after conducting over 5,000 interviews? I was just listening to an old interview yesterday. So scripted. I interviewed this guy called Ralph Bayer, the inventor of the video games. He's passed away. But when I spoke to him, he was 80 years old and he was like still so energetic. Atari. You know Atari? That's the first computer game that came out. So he invented the video games. And I guess you get better, you get smoother in that sense. But one thing that remains the same is I'm so curious. I don't get jaded. 
I don't get jaded I'm trying to find a new angle. I don't get jaded about things. I, I mean, I feel like that's what keeps me going, right? That I'm going to be learning something new. Tomorrow, I'll be talking to this person who's in Johor making Tiffin carriers. They're making Tiffin carriers and supporting youth women. And so it's a social enterprise. There's always something exciting happening in Malaysia with what people are doing, right? You just have to be curious about it. I saw this girl. I bought the soy sauce. I have yet to interview her. The soy sauce is using non-GMO soybean. Like, wow. And it's called Moo Artisan soy sauce and they were sold through a social enterprise called Langit which started from Sarawak they have barrio rice and they have black pepper white pepper and so they were selling their soy sauce through them and then when I went to that particular website this girl she is the third generation she left the corporate job to start the soy business taking the skills from the family business that's been around since 1957 making soy sauce and so her soy sauce with gula melaka one one of which is like the original soy sauce and not too salty like wow so I've tried it and I was like Who is this young girl that's doing this? How do you find people like these to come onto the show? Sometimes people write in and then like be curious. That's like just, for example, like ordering from Langit and I want to support the social enterprise because they're supporting the people in Sarawak. And then after that, you just look, hey, what is this soy sauce that they're selling? Then you just dig a little deeper. Everything's online. You just do a Google search. I think if you want to be a journalist, always be a curious person. There's stories everywhere if you're looking out for it. To be childlike and to be curious. Every story is interesting. Everybody you learn something from. And that's the attitude I want to have. I don't know everything. Have there ever been interviews that you've had where you felt that, oh, I can't air this? I think when they sound too scripted. So I don't have a habit of giving them questions in advance because they'll start preparing the answers and read the script. Then I will purposely change the things around. It's not about good English. It's your enthusiasm. It's your passion coming through. And people can tell when you're reading because we're not actors. The other thing is when you get too silly, every other sentence talks about how wonderful your company is, your product is and everything. Have there been any tough times in business? No, there have been no tough times in business. And like, uh, that kind of thing. Then you're like, hmm. You know? So there's a time and place for that. When you want to get silly, it's called advertising. When it's an interview, you we want to hear what has been challenging for you and what about the most inspiring interviews that you've done i think nick voice was one of those that you had and yeah, she specifically yeah. asked for you oh okay that's another interesting story it's again a uh, divine uh, divine so everybody i meet i've learned something from right and he was just inspiring the sense that it was after the interview he said frida can i pray for you and then when he prayed for me and that was recorded and it came out in the video if you if you do a search in nick boy church malaysia indonesia there's a video and that's his his church ministry video but he captured that moment where he prayed for me. So every time I watch it, I still cry. But it's like just how he prayed for me. But then when you look at him and you listen to him as well, whenever you think you can't do anything and he's like, no arms, no legs. You think you've got your tough life and yet you're able to come out of that. So I mean, just visually, you just feel like, what do I have to be miserable when I've got my arms and my legs? So in that sense, he was very inspiring. The warmth of what he exuded. Again, no favorite, but most touching after the interview. So what happened was that that year, he came to Malaysia twice that year. He actually told me after that, he said, I'll be taking time off from speaking, traveling, because he's now got four kids, so spending time with the kids. By the time his wife was pregnant with the second child, he's like, and if I'm doing any work, it'll be ministry work. It won't be so much as a motivational speaker in that sense. So he came to Malaysia twice that year. That first time, I think he was brought in by, I can't remember, I think it was Sunway Corporation. So everybody was saying, who wants to interview him? Of course, everybody wants to interview him. And then three people from BFM want to interview him. I was like, how can? It's most relevant of my 
sure. But anyway, nobody in BFM got to interview him. So then he came for his second trip. And how he came for the second trip was the guy that brought him in was not supposed to get the deal. But somebody who was supposed to bring him in didn't work out. So he got the deal. And his agreement for this second trip was that he will only do one interview. He will only do one interview. And the thing is, they pitched it to a TV station that said no. And then after that, I get this Facebook message from my friend that says, there's this guy, you know, it's three weeks from now. Are you agreeable to an interview? I said, who's the guy? They told me, of course I'm agreeable. What are you talking about? And the thing is like, they should choose me, my show to be interviewed. And then the TV station subsequently said they wanted him. They said, sorry, he can only do one interview. And now, because you said no earlier on and BFM has agreed, we can't do that interview. Again, the things that happen in your life sometimes. Amazing. It's divine. One of the things that you were doing as well was writing books. You have written five and a sixth one is coming out next year. And I felt like for the first one, which came out in September 2013, you got started writing because of Barash Viral. What was the story behind that? Oh, so I was sitting down with this friend of mine over dinner and I gave him credit, Barash. And he said, write a book lah about PR. You've done this one. I was like, actually, what's the worst that can happen? So the motivation to write that book was, because at the time I've interviewed a lot of Malaysian companies and we're always very shy, not publicizing our story, right? Malaysian companies have done well. And the Americans do it so well. And it's like, we actually have great stories here. Actually, the title of the book, PR Yourself, is like, seriously, you've got to promote yourself. So that was the premise of that book. Then subsequently, you get the courage to do more and to write more and you know Malik supported me in that endeavor as well so self-published second book I co-wrote with Chris Tan third book I was asked to write this book by this guy called Raymond Chu from this marketing company and the fourth and fifth I worked with MPH the fourth book was also about interviewing women in business I was thinking like I, I read another book called Million Dollar Woman an American book and you look at it it's like wow the issues that hold women back are the same whether you're in America or in Malaysia Globally, only 30% of businesses are owned by women. In Malaysia, only 20% of businesses are owned by women. And from that figure, maybe from that 10% of that are earning in revenues in excess of 500,000 ringgit at that time. Why is it that women aren't able to build larger businesses? So rather than dwell on why can't you, I wanted to talk to the women who did and what was their thinking. I didn't want to say, was it funding? I believe a lot of it is how you think. So that was the inspiration for, for Bursting Fixed Mindsets. And the last book I wrote was called In Your Skin. I want to celebrate people who are successful. Again, successful is very different for different people. Not everyone's going to be in radio. It, it, looks, it looks very glamorous, but we are all like... Like people I featured, Heidi Kwa, who's successful because of the work that she does for refugees. Jocelyn Lee, who does work at the pit stop community and does these things for the homeless. That's successful. We are all called to do different things and we can celebrate that. The worst thing that can happen is when we start comparing on what success is, right? Because we're all called to do different things. So I held back from doing TV, radio full-time because I didn't feel comfortable. I never saw this as something full-time. I always had a day job to keep me sane, to say, okay, this is it. And sometimes doors will shut and God will lead you in certain directions. Certain direction, like it or not, you try to push back, he will still move you in a certain direction. Let's talk about, for instance, the book you wrote about Raymond Chu. I thought that was really fascinating because you interviewed, I think, around 40 people throughout his life just to put it all together. So what was the process like? I co-wrote it with the daughters and it was like from suppliers to clients to people who work with him and it was very consistent what they said about him it was very funny and that's the beauty because he was consistent it didn't matter whether they were clients suppliers or employees the message was consistent about him and about how he lived his life and he was successful of course he was less financially but that is just an element what a legacy that people sing the same tune about you regardless so that was quite a journey yeah and what about for bursting fixed mindsets was it difficult to find these 15 women? 
No, because I've interviewed them and they've become friends. A lot of them have become friends. What was interesting for me was Amy Cox Blair. She was one social enterprise that was featured there. And to me, I thought that was a great success story because social enterprises, not a lot of them, they, a lot of them still think like NGOs and they are not profitable. So to see a social enterprise successful, that's great because the more successful you are, the more lives you're impacting. And I think that is such an important thing, sustainability in business and you can make money and do good at the same time. So I love the concept of social enterprises, whatever cause, like the girls from PHIE, helping refugees, Christmas tea or whatever, I would cater from them. They have great products and I, I know that if I'm catering from them, I'm also helping a refugee family. I love to give my money to businesses like that that's doing something good and good luck. I want you to make money in the process. Yeah, and there's like dignity for children to cut your hair, yes. to buy bread. So do you yes. see that there's a transformation in the social enterprising and more and more people are aware and supporting them? I think so. I'm very passionate about social enterprises. There's 17 sustainable development goals, whether it's gender equality, whether it's no poverty. So social enterprises, to me, play a pivotal role in changing these goals, in achieving these goals. So when we talk about gender equality, the Batik Boutique people are actually helping a large number of women. They, they do employ both men and women, but more women who live in the you know the PKR flats, they're the B40, so you're helping them. So that's giving them gender equality. The refugees, one of the other SDGs as well. And when you do like one thing like that, it spills over into other things as well. You teach them to fish and not give them fish. And tell us more about your sixth book that's coming out next year. The sixth book was written during COVID. Someone asked me to write this book and there was no urgency to write the book. But then COVID happened and MCO happened and I had nowhere to go. And so I was like, okay, so the book is called Life's a Stage. It's a play on words because I've been on the stage, but actually it's about understanding life stages. And I believe that you can have everything you want in life, just not at the same time. Some things have to give. And I sort of split it into zero to 10, like my life from zero to 10. And that was the wonder years when I was growing up. And then the confused years with my teenage years. And then after that, it was the establishing years in my 20s, 30s, establishing myself. And I think we go through these life stages. And I think my 30s to 40s was what we call the cocoon years, where I was working, but I was working from home. My priority at the time was very much my son, but I knew the importance of still having a job and having my own income. But during that period, I was taking care of my son, doing my work. I was taking up coaching. I was doing other things. And it was during that period that I got into BFM. And that was a growth for me because I also know that my son, he meets me zero to six. Like now he's 18. I don't know where he is, very wise man called Basil Harris told me, children are temporary guests in your household. And if you understand that, you love them. And he needs to see that mom's independent, that mom's doing his own thing. And now that he's 18, imagine like, where are you? I love you, but it's very suffocating if I'm just like this. And I knew that he's going to be 18 because I was 18 too. And you want to exert your independence then. So you have to understand this. And a lot of women who give up their work, take care of the kids, kudos to you. But during that period, if you decide to give up your work, to take care of your kids, take the time to learn something or do something, develop some sort of skill because the emptiness syndrome will happen. And then you're completely lost. We are not just one entity. I am a mother. I am a daughter. I am a sister. I am all these things. Understand that and be prepared. And that's the premise of the book, Life's a Stage. And I wrote a thousand words a day, over 40 days. And it was like, no TV, no Netflix, none of that until you've done your homework. So self-imposed discipline. Just going through the final stages of editing right now. Yeah, I noticed because I was lining up all the books and I realized that each of these books were published within a year or two. And I thought, wow, you are really, really prolific. You have really got it going. Actually, I, I had no plans to write one this year. I had no plan. And so there's 2013, 2014, 2015. I took a break. Then 2018 it came one, 2019 came one. I had no plans to write the book so soon. But then I guess 2021, and the next book coming up. And there is one thing I hope you don't mind us touching on because... 
obviously as a mother, that's something that's very important to you. And you went through a really difficult time in 2014 as well because of your divorce. And you've been really open about it and even gave a TEDx talk about being better, not bitter. And I wonder if you could talk us through you going through those five stages of grief to such an amazing place. Okay, yeah, so it is like death. Okay, so better not better is also Basil Harris, my mentor, taught me. But it's from Nelson Mandela, you know, he said like drinking poison, you're drinking poison and expecting someone else to die. That's bitterness, right? You are the only one drinking poison. So at that moment when it happened, actually 2009 already, I didn't know what I had to do, but I just prayed to God and I said, God, I don't want to be bitter. Just make me better. And I don't know what better looks like. I had no idea what better. I just didn't want bitterness to set in my heart. I guess I've seen people who are bitter after something horrible happens to them. So when you are going through anything that's horrible, you have to take time to go through the emotions. Connected with the five stages of grief, you go through the whole process and you go through at your own time. But you must have that vision that you will come out of it. So the healing may take a long time, but attitude is that I will come out. So I think one of the things that I did then, what got me going was what is in my control and what is not my control. How my ex react is not in my control. I can only control myself. So the first thing was to get right with God and to to connect back with God because it's got to be well in my soul. Your cup has to be full, right? Before you can do anything. That is the most important thing was my anchor. And doesn't mean the pain magically disappears. I can still talk about it and cry. I still do. And it's okay because it's still a painful experience. doesn't mean that I don't cry anymore. So the thing was to get right with God. Like if everything is removed from me right now, if who am I, not a newsreader, not a you know writer, none of that, who am I is very important. Who's the am I is also very important. So you've got to be very clear about that. So find your anchor, whatever it may be. For me, it is my God. The second thing was after that, when I started like, you're so miserable. Now, what's the second thing is exercise. Why exercise? Exercise gives you your endorphins, your oxytocin, the happy chemicals. So it means that you're going to be fitter in the process anyway. So I went to do a boot camp with people I completely didn't know. And it was fun. I needed that time out. Your whole body aches. You're getting happy chemicals from exercise. That is the process. So you go through the motions until you get that point to better. So the wheel of life, which I talk a lot about, that's so important. Your faith, your fitness, friendships. My friends are very important to me. I make time for my friends. I invest in my friends and they invest back in me as well. And I choose my friends. I choose to remove some people from my life if they drain me. So my friends are important. Sort out your finances as well. Make sure that you've got enough, your insurance and everything, your family. So my son and all that, that's important. Spending time with him and investing time with him. Mental growth. You must also invest in fun. And my fun is traveling. And I learn so much when I go traveling. And that's my thing. That's my excitement. And so this year, very painful, but you find other things to do. Yeah, you find other fun things to do. You do other fun things. And what's the other one? Community, even doing things for community. That's also important, how you behave. And how has COVID impacted you? I mean, you mentioned it briefly with the book, with the love of traveling, about like overall into the career, your life. How has it impacted you? And how do you see your future? I'm going to choose to see the good in it. Every time, even when I go traveling, there are still people communicating with you because although you are resting, other people are not resting. For once, everybody's resting for a while and it really gave me time to think. And you have to be comfortable in your skin to be comfortable in your own thoughts about where you want to go. And so last year, fortunately, I took up a course and now I had time to do the course properly. I did a postgrad diploma in design thinking and it was like completely again, out of field, but I wanted to learn design thinking. So that was what I did. I've just embarked on a new course. I want to get myself certified as a futurist. So this is something that I've learned. Then I've also developed an online course with Andreas Boyazakis and Wendy Lee. 
Overmind, yeah. So I've just developed a course with them. I do a lot of work with MC and all that. There were no more events, but then I was visible. So fortunately, I still had work doing webinars and all that because I was very visible. Then also you think about the passive side of things. So coming up with an online course, and I've always wanted to do that. Now I have the time to do it. So I'm choosing to see the positive things that I wanted to do. Finally, I had the time to do it. And you can only just move on. And like, I've got my little book planning for 2021. And I always plan for December. My year usually ends by November. And I'm already prepping for the next year. So I already do a closing ceremony of my year. And then like, what's next year going to be? Does everything happen? No, but at least I write it down. And if 60% happens, it's good enough. You actually wrote about this quite extensively on your website. The whole concept of goal setting and how Forbes actually did a study on Harvard MBA students that those who wrote down their goals are 10 times more likely to achieve them than those who didn't. Yeah, if the facts are telling you that, better do it. Lah. So that's the thing, we always hear these things, right? Now, like When I say these things, like it's nothing new. It's just that no one actually put it into practice. You put it into practice, some things are 60% happen better than 0%, right? Actually, my grand plans for this year was like, not even the book, design thinking course was one. Things that I wanted to do is that I'm sure I would have been distracted by my overseas holiday. I'm sure. I'd have been distracted by it. But now there was no overseas holiday to distract me. So, okay, no excuse. You know, I can't go for events. I had to write a thousand words a day. So it would, would have been something I would have done anyway, but probably would have taken my time. Lah. And so in your book, In Your Skin, you always ask the interviewees, what would they have told themselves at the age of 21? So I'm wondering how you will answer that question. Don't be in a hurry. I understand the concept of delayed gratification. I think that's really important. And I've never been in a hurry. I've never been about chasing the money. No point in having all the money and it's not fulfilling. I always tell this to women, freeze your eggs. Like I have no regrets having my son. I have no regrets having him at that age. I wasn't that young, wasn't that old either. I have no regrets doing that. What happens with a woman? Unfortunately, it's the biological clock. And some people unsure they want or they don't want to have children. If you can afford it, please eggs. And you won't be in a hurry to find someone because your clock is ticking. Now, if you take that equation out of the picture, then you might be able to get more clarity on your life partner should you choose to get married. Again, not everybody needs to be married. I'm saying there are no regrets. There are no regrets, but why not? And is there anything that you, could, you would want to go back and redo if you could? No, not really. Not really, yeah. Like I would say, be more disciplined, but I'm okay. No, not really. Like everything happens for a reason. Of course, I've got goals. One thing I really appreciate about myself is something doesn't happen now. It doesn't happen now. I'm not so hard up about it. When the doors open, it just opens. If it doesn't open, it doesn't open. And sometimes it's not now. And again, a new thing that I'm talking about, the mental real estate, I've been writing a few articles in New Straits Times about it and understanding Kronos time and Kairos time. You know, So whenever we work with our Kronos time, I got to do this, I got to do this. That's a Kronos time and we're looking at time. But sometimes it's Kairos time. And you have to understand that sometimes Kairos time is the opportune time or in God's time. So understand that when some things don't happen, that's because it's according to your plan. But then some things just happen because it's Kairos time. And I look back at the Kairos timing in my life that going back to Kuching at that time, that door should open. You know, like when I look back at that period in IBM when I was stuck, I hated that role. I didn't hate the company, but I hated that role. It was miserable. But if I wasn't pushed in that corner, I wouldn't have even looked at BFM. And you look back, ah, right? And I was just saying that some things that 20 years later on, you're like, ah, no wonder that door didn't open. So I think like as I get older, I'm more relaxed about some things. Okay, I've tried it. Okay, not meant to be, not meant to be lah. But I tried it. Like just a very simple thing. I appreciate like my student doing my book cover for me. 
you, you know, I mean, it's like, she just happened to be there. She wants to do it for me for free. Of course, I give her credit and everything. But it's like, eh, how do you explain that? And you're just thankful for little things. It's not the money. You can pay someone to do it, but just the sweetness of what has happened. And this is a journey 20 plus years ago when I last saw her. What is one thing for those who are listening to this interview? What can they do to help you? Oh, what can they do to help me? Buy my next book, <laughs> buy in bulk, buy in bulk. Because, okay, no, I mean, the story buy in bulk is because uh, I'm working with a different publisher right now. So they are from Singapore, Marshall Cavendish. So they're also working with a Malaysian distributor. And of course, it's different now, you know? I, and, and that's the reason why I wanted to work with them as well, was a whole new experience. What's it like we're working with an international publisher based out of Singapore? And I'm so glad, again, I just wrote a letter. Okay, another story. I wrote a letter and said, would you like to publish my book? This is who I am. He said, yeah, okay. Can you tell me? If it didn't happen, it didn't happen. And plan B was to, to go back to you know other publishers, but it happened. If people can do bulk purchases, then that comes with a talk that I can do online or face-to-face, depending on the situation. And you can use it for you know, your women's group in your organizations or International Women's Day. A very nice organization has already agreed to buy my books. HSBC, thank you. So, like that. Lah. You have obviously interviewed lots of people and you've given lots of interviews too. Tell us something we don't already know about you. Here's a new story. I remembered this very recently. I wrote it in my book and I was like, oh my goodness. So when I was about nine or 10 years old, there was a storytelling competition with all the different schools in Brunei. I won for my district, Kuala Blight, and we went to the finals. And it was on RTB, Radio Television Brunei. So this was over radio. And I wrote my own article and I did the storytelling. I remember there was one girl that was very articulate. I remember when they were announcing the results, I remember turning pale doing this because this was aired on radio. And after that, they were announcing winners. I'm like, when am I getting my consolation prize? When am I getting my consolation prize? And after that, I got second prize. I was so surprised that I got second prize. I really did not expect to win. And I know the first girl was very articulate and everything, but I was more nervous. And I looked back and said, wow, that was my first foray into radio and writing stories. I still suddenly remember this second prize. I was like, I had a could have won. But I wasn't even thinking about winning. I was just thinking like, let me get it over and done with. I was like, wow, that story. Suddenly I remembered radio, how it's made such an impact in my life. Wonderful. I love that story. Thank you for sharing. So I normally end all of my interviews with these questions. So the first one is, do you feel like you have found your why? Who? I have found my ikigai and it continues to evolve. I know my why is to impact lives and how and in what form, I don't know. So everything I do, every interview I do, does it impact lives? Every book that I write, does it impact lives? Every connection that I make, whether I'm buying from social enterprises, does it impact lives? So that's my why. The method, the way it could change along the way, but I know that I'm here to impact lives. And what kind of legacy would you like to leave behind? That I've impacted lives. <laughs> I think, okay, I think the most important thing, jokes aside, is my son. And I told him that I love you. He is my world. And that we continue to have a great relationship. I think what's the point of all the success of the person that's closest to you said, mom, you suck. I, I think that is the most important thing at the end of the day. So I want to continue to have that relationship. Know that mom has always been supportive. Mom has always been you know, encouraging. Now forget about what everybody says. If your son can't say that about you, how is that successful? And what do you think are the most important qualities a successful person should have? Authenticity. Authenticity, that's important. I think people are definitely looking for that right now. Integrity. If you're not bribable at a million, are you bribable at 10 million? So yeah, being authentic, having integrity, that's important. So if you don't equate success with 
finance. Like people always think of it as finance, and I never want to equate with that. I would say authenticity and integrity will be the qualities of someone I respect. Yeah. And where can people go to connect with you, find out more about what you're doing, and support your work? I'm on every platform there is called the Frida Liu. But I think connect with me on LinkedIn and LinkedIn Frida Liu, you'll be able to find me. And I'll put those in the show notes as well so people can go to find you. Thank you so much, Frida. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you. Thank you for your time and doing this late at night. And that was the end of episode 27. For the show notes, visit sodismywide.com forward slash 27, where you can get the links to everything we just talked about. And don't forget to subscribe to the newsletter as well while you're there where you get a lowdown on some of the most fascinating and inspiring things, people and developments I've found over the past week. And stay tuned for next Sunday, because we'll be meeting a Korean-American violin child prodigy and what it was like to grow up before crowds of thousands, starting in Juliet, being on tour, and what her life and purpose now is. <laughs>